In this episode of the Business of E-Commerce, I talk with Rob Kessler about inventing a completely new product in an already crowded space. This is the Business of E-Commerce, episode 29. Welcome to the Business of E-Commerce, the podcast that helps e-commerce retailers start, launch, and grow their e-commerce business. I'm your host, Charles Pulaski. I'm here today with Rob Kessler. Rob is the founder of Million Dollar Collar, which is a brilliantly simple product that reinforces the placket of any dress shirt, preventing it from collapsing and becoming a sloppy mess. He has experience as a businessman, knowledgeable in the clothing manufacturing process, and has a desire to help make men more comfortable and stylish with a staple clothing item. I want to bring Rob on the show today to talk about his experience developing, manufacturing, launching, and selling this innovative new product. So, hey, Rob, how are you doing today? Great. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, doing good. Definitely uh, love getting the experience of other e-commerce founders, people that kind of built the product from scratch. So I want to kind of talk to you about you know how you did that and how you got started. Does that uh, intro sound kind of a good description of Million Dollar Caller? Or what's your kind of description? What is it exactly? So this, the, the long and the short of it is is... You know, just like a collar stay keeps the collar looking straight, million dollar collar actually goes down this part of the shirt. So when you wear a shirt without a tie, it'll never crumble, it'll never fold, it'll just give you that nice V so that, you know, when you're wearing a dress shirt, you always look good. To me, I, I, I like to wear V-necks and T-shirts and hang out, but when I put on a dress shirt, I, I it's because I want to look important or I want to dress up or... Uh, you know, I just don't want to look sloppy. So when I got married and my shirt looked like this all day, uh, it really drove me nuts. And I just remember tugging and tugging and tugging and it just wouldn't sit the way I wanted. And then that's because there's no reinforcement down this part of the shirt. So, um, that's basically what it is. It's just a little strip. It looks like this. So one goes into each side, it gets sewn into your shirt. And once it's in, it lasts the life of the shirt. And so for everyone listening to it's a little strip is a plastic. It's plastic like, plastic like. Um, okay. I can tell you from the, the bin of a hundred shirts I ruined, it's not plastic. Ah, I okay. tried zip ties and mini blinds and every piece of plastic I could find in my house. Uh, and I ruined all those shirts. And then I found every piece of plastic on the commercial market and ruined shirts. Uh, turns out they use really, really high temperature when they flash pressure shirt at the dry cleaner. So um, we actually end up having to develop a material that can handle almost double what they use a dry cleaner. So lightweight, flexible, and insanely high heat resistant. So okay. So if you're listening, it's a it's a small strip of not plastic, but something plastic like <laughs> that goes inside. Yes. You know, any sort of dress shirt, and it goes down to what would you say the like second button, um, and allows you to basically wear your shirt uh, unbuttoned for the first couple buttons, and doesn't actually uh, do that thing that I think all guys have experienced with a shirt you know starts off nice and then starts like falling over basically at some point um in its lifetime yeah i mean the starch is going to wear off the the, you know ironing is for wrinkles starch helps wrinkles collar stays are for the collar there's never been this anything for this part of the shirt and you know dress shirts just weren't really designed to be worn without a tie but you know over the last 10 or 15 years the tie has slowly gone away and dress shirts have never haven't really caught up. And so, uh, 
it all came to a head on my wedding day and I just felt like on the biggest day of my life, I looked like a slob and I came home just absolutely determined to come up with something that, that would fix. And uh, I mean, we pivoted probably three times before we launched. I've had so many different ideas. If you saw the prototypes of the designs that we had, I mean, we went all over the board, but um, it ended up being less expensive for the consumer to sew it in one time than almost any other option. Um, one of the other ones that people always suggest is why doesn't it get ironed on? But as you can see, both sides of the shirt are visible and with a million fabric patterns, you're gonna have some ugly stick, like sticking on the edge of your shirt. And I, I just didn't think that would be a good looking uh, option. So un unhem a couple stitches, side, slide it in, sew it back together. Any tailor can do it in five minutes. And once it's in, it lasts life of your shirt. It's just super, super easy. Hmm. So what was that process like? You said, it, obviously, you didn't get this right the first time. This is something you had to kind of do multiple iterations. Where did you kind of start and how long did that whole process take from figuring, you know, starting at your wedding day from figuring, you know, you found, okay, this is an issue all the way down to where you are today? So I came home from the wedding. Um, I cut open the first dress shirt and shoved a piece of cardboard down the plaque at the part with the buttons and the holes and showed my new bride and instantly she was like, oh, I get what you've been so frustrated about. I couldn't, you know, it's just a hard thing to, to explain, but when you see it, like instantly, you know. And so I knew cardboard wasn't gonna be the solution. And so, like I said, I, I tried milk cartons and mini blinds and zip ties and, and any plastic I could find to start proving the concept. Uh, all in all, it took three years to get the universal design that we have, which, you know, they say in engineering, if it looks simple, that means you've engineered it right. Yep. <laughs> and this is, it's pretty simple looking, but um, I ruined a hundred shirts and I don't want to ruin somebody else's. So it, it was not only a matter of getting the design right, so it fit into almost every dress shirt universally, uh, but also so that the material would last, you know, once it was installed. I didn't want to have people up going back constantly and having it redone. So. Um, you kind of have to play down to the lowest common denominator of how brutal is somebody going to be on their dress shirt. And that's what you have to base it on. And then everybody else, it should be just fine. Yeah, I definitely have those shirts that I've either like crumple up into a ball to like shove in a backpack yes. or, yeah, <laughs> you know, how many times you wash them, go to the dry cleaner. I've had that time where you leave something in the shirt and you bring it to the dry cleaner and then it gets like permanently like etched into the shirt um, because of like the temperature. So I've definitely, uh, I think most men have, had this experience where you know, <laughs> we've all beat up these shirts. Um, so three years to actually um, find something to that can stand up to that doesn't even seem that bad. It seems like that was actually pretty quick to um, be able to handle that. So Yeah, and I was running, um, I had a screen printing and embroidery business, okay. so I was running that full time while trying to figure this out. So um, it was a, I did it when I could. You know, I'm sure if I would have focused 24 hours a day on it, you know, it would have taken a lot less time. But it was just, it was just kind of the pace that it worked at, and ended up selling that business. And I've been able to focus on this for the last two and a half years full time. So it's been a pretty incredible uh, journey so far. So how long ago, from let's say from your wedding day, how long ago did that actually happen? And you know, come, what's the timeline look like from when you started to where you are today? I got married February 11th, 2013. I will never forget that day. As married <laughs> guys know. Yep, that's a good one. Check inside my ring. <laughs> so 2013, so it's been a little over five years now. Um, we got, uh, my wife and I actually sold that business, that screen printing business. She sold her gym that she had 
and um, we moved to Los Angeles to kind of fully immerse ourselves and be around what we thought would be inspiring other people, uh, entrepreneurs and business owners. And so we took a 10 day journey from Wisconsin where we live to Los Angeles. And on that 10 day drive in October of 2015, our patent attorney finally called and said, your patent was approved and it was issued uh, about two months later. So December of 2015 was when it was actually issued. We officially launched January of 2016. Um, we've sold 155,000 units to people in 92 countries. I mean, I get orders and I'm like, I have to go look on a map to find out where some of these countries are at. <laughs> so it's been a pretty incredible uh, journey, definitely. Yeah. So then did you have any manufacturing um, other than the screen printing? I'm guessing actually, where did you manufacture this? Is it something US-based or overseas? Or how does that work? And how do you go on? How do you go about figuring out that process of, okay, I have an idea, I have a prototype, how do I actually get that made? It's 100% made in America. Um, I, To me, it was important to have somebody close by that I could work with. I just hear all these nightmare stories of trying to deal with somebody overseas and being a brand new product in a brand new category. Um, there's a lot of explanation and it has to be just right. And actually during the process of developing this and trying to figure it out, we did pre-production dress shirt samples in India and we were going to make our own dress shirt and we did a Kickstarter and all that. And so I understood or I learned that process a little bit, but you know, I asked around, I just, I happened to know a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy that, you know, knew a plastics company and we, you know, that's where we got, but you can just hop on Google and search plastics company and, and you have to have some kind of starting point. But I, I literally went to every, you know, I searched every plastics distributor online I could find, ordered all kinds, did a ton of research, ordered whatever product samples I could get and tested things. And when that didn't work, you know, the next step was, all right, I got to go talk to somebody and have a conversation and then try to, you know, figure out. So, uh, fortunately, locally, there was a, a, a worldwide patent or a, worldwide plastics company that I worked with. They helped me develop the material uh, and they handle the manufacturing for me. So I can hop on a plane and, and be there in a couple hours and, you know, tear somebody's head off if I have to. <laughs> and you can probably go look at prototypes and actually kind of, you know, touch and fail them and see, you know, is this what I'm actually looking for and not just, you know, order X number of units and hope a month later they arrive. Um, the way you, the way you kind of described on the phone, you can actually see them uh, before you, place that big order probably makes a good it's uh, a lot harder to chase down somebody in china or yeah. or you know indonesia or something I, my friend is the inventor of coco jack and I, I hear about his nightmare stories trying to get this stuff his stuff's overseas and it's it, it's a pretty basic you know it's a metal thing and a mallet and a bag and and he's been screwed over um and so something that simple if you can't get that and find somebody trustworthy to do that I, it just I didn't want to. I didn't want to leave it too far out of my hands. So it was just more important to me to be able to have a conversation with somebody and and work it out as we went along. Now, did you wait till you had the patent granted before you started that, or like b between the patent and when you actually started the whole manufacturing process? What was that timeline like? Um, I came. So the wedding was February. I think in June or July we did a patent search, um, which. You know, that's the first roll of the dice. You know, you spend fifteen hundred to three thousand bucks to have them do a dig deeper. I mean, I Googled as much as I could and I didn't see anything that 
resembled what I was trying to do. But, you know, before you go too far, just do that patent search. You might find out that it's too grand and that exact thing that you've come up with has already been patented but not out. Um, we didn't see anything. There was no nothing similar. So it was like, okay, let's let's keep moving. And it's just kind of a slow progression. The patent process is insane. So, um. <laughs> yeah, how, how long is the patent is good for? It's uh, is it thirteen years or fifteen? Fifteen. Okay. Yep. So you got that. So you still have quite a long life on this patent. Um, and then so you got that. So you started looking for the patent, and then did you start looking for the manufacturer while you're in the patent pending process, or what was that? When did yeah, you I mean, once that? you once you file for the patent and you're provisional and then you're patent pending, you, your place is in line. So okay. you can go and have those conversations. If somebody goes and tries to file a patent after you, they used to be like, uh, used to have to be able to prove when you wrote it. And someone could be like, oh, I wrote it on a bar napkin in 2001 and here's my proof. And you could actually get a patent issued over somebody else then. Now it's it's in line. So if you have an idea, I just suggest filing it because you can figure out those details. I mean, it's crazy. If you go, I think I looked in um, silk milk or something my wife drinks, and it says patent pending on silk milk. I mean, what a gigantic company. It still says patent pending on there. So um, there's patents that are, once you have at least, least that you, you got a little bit of a track record and a little bit of uh, protection so yeah once you get that you can start moving along down the process you can't wait for everything because uh if you don't expedite the patent process uh reviews it's like six months before you hear back each time you submit and uh, we paid to expedite which is like i don't know four thousand bucks or something uh, and they respond within six weeks as opposed to six months so even that's a long time yeah, so just to get those conversations kind of rolling, and I'm assuming it sounds like the whole, um, I don't know the exact numbers, but it sound, I don't know if you want to share, but it sounds like the patent process got, you know, gets relatively expensive. I'm assuming there's legal fees and some other, uh, you know, professionals you have to hire to help along with that process. Well, yeah, it's a, it's kind of a game, you know, the, your patent attorney wants to protect you and they want to write it this big and cover every possible, you know, thing. Well, the patent office is like, uh -uh, we want it very, very, you know, finite and exact, and they want it this big. And so then your patent attorney is like, okay, how about this big? And they're like, how about this big? And then it's just like this. And so every time it goes back and forth, you get another bill in the mail for a thousand bucks, fifteen hundred bucks, two thousand bucks. And yeah, our original estimate was like twenty grand or something, and it was significantly more than that for the to actually get the patent, like significantly. And then once you get to the U.S., it's like, do you want to go international? I mean, a worldwide international patent is like a quarter of a million to a half a million dollars. Okay, so you start with the so, U.S. at this point, and uh, yep. Okay, and then so how long did that whole process take from the time you applied to when you actually got granted? Then about two and a half years. Okay, so but at the very beginning, you applied, started talking to the manufacturers, got that ball rolling, and we're still kind of doing the pattern, the back and forth, the patent, the patent back and forth um, while you're working the manufacturing process. Yeah, I mean, when you have an idea, it's like, dude, I wanna go, like, let's start selling this, let's do it, let's move, you know? And you can't wait for, I mean, if you waited for the patent and then you did that, oh my God, we'd still be waiting to launch. So you kind of have to do things a little bit uh, simultaneously. And like I said, once you file that provisional, you got some protection, so you can start working away. I'd be careful at who you talk to, but 
I've talked to a lot of business owners and people that own patents and some are like, oh, make sure you get an NDA signed and you know, you're protected. And others are like, dude, it's not even worth the time. If they really want to do something, they're going to do it. So I would just be careful who you talk to uh, and just make sure that your ducks are in a row and you should be fine. So you, rec you don't recommend the whole NDA type thing? Um, and from the also, advice and, I've yeah, neither of us are actually attorneys, so we should probably <laughs> we should probably advice. say neither of us are actually giving real legal <laughs> advice here. But just in your experience, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I might have signed one or two in the beginning, but um, it to me, it's just like, hey, I want to talk to you. By the way, sign this legal document. It's like, dude, easy. You know, you're trying to build a relationship with someone. Throwing a legal document in front of them in the first is not. That's not how you find a wife. You know, hey, you look nice. Can you find this? <laughs> sign this prenuptial agreement. Dude, this is our first date. We talk about. Yeah, so. I've, I've had folks that definitely uh, want to tell them about their e-commerce business, and they're like, "But it's a very new business. You have to sign NDA." I'm like, uh, you know, it always rubs you this like, you know, is it? Do I really have to? Like, that sounds a little, I don't know, amateurish. Amateurish. Um, I guess being on the other end. So I've definitely experienced that um, as someone being asked to sign it. And you're like, eh, I don't know. So so then you approach the manufacturer, start talking to them, doing some you know back and forth on prototyping with them. And then what's that whole, what does it look like actually saying, okay, we're ready. Let's, let's actually do this. Let's build X number of units. Um, and it sounds like shipping because it's all US-based wasn't you know a huge deal. So it wasn't the whole, customs and that whole thing but what was that whole process like of getting the first kind of few or getting the first shipment of them you know so it was i would just get um sheets of plat of the materials different materials and i would sit with the scissors and cut and then um went over to the computer and try to did some do some cad type drawings to get them really finite um ours are die cut so we had to really get that dialed in and figured out that process but you know it's it's just a lot of back and forth i mean this, like I said, it looks really simple now that I had one that had a hook on the bottom that I thought it was going to connect on the bottom of a button. And then, you know, who knows where the button is at and the length. And, you know, it was just there's ones that like wrapped all the way around the button or the buttonhole on top. And I mean, I just went all over the board. Uh, but you just have to keep testing and trying and see what works and try not to overcomplicate things. I mean, I think a lot of people try to overcomplicate things. I love the acronym KISS. Keep, keep it simple, stupid. And I think if you can keep along that line, you know, like I said, this looks super simple, but it took a lot to get to that point. But yeah, I mean, start simple scissors and, you know, work with what you have if you can before you have to hire out what you have to, because everything adds up really, really, really quickly. Well, and once it's die cut and the way that works, so you have to, you basically buy the, the die um, and purchase that. And once the die is built, you know, it becomes a lot cheaper, but it costs a lot to build that initially. Uh, and then you basically own that. So you have to figure out exactly what you want, get that, okay, this is it, lock it down, and then build the die, price drops at that point, but you can't go back and change it. So you need to really make sure you know what you want before you do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that's why, you know, taking those scissors and, and really trying to get that as close as you can. An X-Acto knife is what I was using and really, you know, using a ruler and try to get it really close. Um, because yeah, once we had that die, you know, and there was two different die cut processes. So in the beginning it was like, well, well, let's go with the less expensive version. We might have a little bit more waste in the material to start, but we can at least test and see if this is going because it can seem like everything is right leading up to that point. And yep, the stay is the way I want it. The shape is right. 
and then they start die cutting and maybe something that you didn't foresee. And we had actually a lot of issues with the die cutting because the material apparently is thick for a plastic die cut, but it's too thin for a metal die cut. And so we were kind of in this weird like in-between stage. So we had to do a lot of uh, tweaking to get it right. And then, you know, as the product grew, I thought, oh, we'll sell it in these quantities. And then that didn't pricing didn't really make sense. And so we switched the quantities, which kind of screwed up using the other die that we had. So now we have two dies. Um, and we thought that adding a little bit to the one die was going to not change anything. And it couldn't do. Oh, my God. It was like <laughs> what you think in your head is going to be super easy. <laughs> it's just way too many factors. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's what a lot of folks when you're getting started, you don't realize it like that is kind of the thing about business. All those little things on the die and like all these. This is the job. Um, and this is these are the problems you're actually working to solve. It's not. You know, there's there's other stuff, but trying to find, you know, how do I actually get this thing cut and exactly how do I lay this out? These are like the actual issues and this is the job. So that's kind of an interesting uh, take on it. I love the whole, keep it simple because you see these things just balloon out of control. And it sounds like even to get to this, you spent, you know, quite a few hours and uh, I'm guessing tens of thousands of dollars um, on this actual process, even to get, before you even sold the first unit. Yeah. Oh, dude, we have... We've so much people are like, oh, they they seem expensive. You know, we sell for two to three dollars a set, and people look at it and think that it's super cheap. And it's like, uh, based on what I have in the patent and R and D, and getting, I, we're still like not making money <laughs> on those first sets because there's so much that goes to launching a company. Uh, yeah, it's 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 crazy. But you know, being an entrepreneur, it's it's just dealing with problems because that's all there is. You're gonna have issue after issue after issue and it's either going to bog you down and drive you crazy or you just have to look at one and say okay what's the solution everything that comes across my desk or comes across me is okay it sucks but how do we fix it and that's just the attitude you have to take to keep moving forward and now is this something you had experience with or did you already like did you already have this mindset going into this and you've done this before what was like what in the past kind of taught you you know to do this and to just move forward and you're going to have these issues. Like what was that thing? I'm super stubborn, like super stubborn. And I, I like puzzles. I don't know if you can see in the back, this New York skyline, but that's a 5,000 piece puzzle. <laughs> um, and I just like figuring stuff out. Um, I remember being a kid and, you know, being an idiot running around the house and I'd break something or I'd be screwing around with something. And I'd break it. I was the kid that would figure out how to put it back together and back on the shelf before I got caught. So I've always kind of been that tinkerer and been able to kind of figure things out. But yeah, I think I'm just super stubborn. And so when a challenge comes across, it's like, okay, I'll, I got to fix it. Um, my screen printing business, I didn't know anything about screen printing when I started. Like I started a clothing line with graphic t-shirts and I was getting charged way too much by screen printers. So Literally one night I met a guy through a friend. He's like, knew how to screen print. He's like, dude, you want to do it? Let's buy these equipment together. And two weeks later we bought the whole setup. I didn't know this guy from, you know, other than a friend of a friend. And he ended up teaching me. I told some friends I knew how to screen print and my whole screen printing business grew without me ever really marketing it because the last thing I wanted to do was be a screen printer. I wanted to be a clothing company guy and that just didn't work. So I, I taught myself how to screen print. I learned how to be better at it. And, and, you know, it just was a progression, you know, just get that stuff out the gate. I mean, no company is 
born a billionaire, you know, a billion dollar company, you start at nothing and you have to work your way up. And so I think a lot of people forget that when they see a Facebook or a Twitter, they're like, oh, they're gigantic. Well, they weren't always, you know. Yeah. And the thing is, at the beginning, there's all that's, there's a lot of things that need to be done and not a lot of people to do them. So it's typically the founder that does the screen printing and stays up late and actually does that physical, you know, physically has to make the products. And you don't see that part, you know, when you, years later, you just see, oh, you know, they have a team and this and that. But at the beginning, it's usually just one or two folks and they're just, they're grinding it out and doing all the work. So it's definitely um, a lesson to be had there. Yeah, 700 square feet in the in the basement of my wow. house. We did, I think- Those things aren't small. Yeah, 300, <laughs> uh, we did, uh, I think 30,000 shirts in our first couple of years out of the basement on a four color manual press manually did every single one of those 30,000 shirts on like a basic starter kit startup thing with a flash press dryer, which, you know, now they run through these huge conveyors and, you know, but yeah, you just got to start somewhere. I think people dream so big and I just didn't have the money. So I dreamed big, but I had to take those steps to get there. And it was, it's not sexy. It's not fun, but you know, that's kind of what you have to do if you want to be successful. Yeah. That's a good one. In the early days, it really, it's, it's not, going to be as cool as people think. Um, it's going to be just nights and doing work that most people don't want to do is really what it comes down to. And it's not the, you know, the fun stuff. It's just, it's grinding it out. Yeah. And a lot of friends don't understand. I mean, you got your nine to five job friends and it's Thursday night and they want to party or the weekend and they want to go do whatever. And, and, you know, my wife and I both lost a lot of friends in this process because, you know, we just see a longer term vision and we were willing to sacrifice and do things that most people aren't to get to where we are. And we're not by any means there yet, but you know, it's, it's a journey. I like that. So then after you actually got the whole die print, the whole die down and figured out that, what did the actual, what was it like to get that first run of them and that first kind of, um, you know, production, get them in packages, I'm guessing. And how did that all, and did you have to I'm guessing purchased a relatively large number on the first run or was it something you could do kind of some small bits each time? So that was kind of the nice thing about having the relationship with the manufacturer. Um, the way that our material is produced is in rolls. So, you know, giant, massive rolls of this and then they die cut it out. Um, they were willing to, I bought a roll of material. They would slice it down to whatever I needed and I would do like a quarter of a roll at a time. And they would just hold on to it until I needed more. So that was really, you know, a big thing for us is to have that relationship. Um, because, yeah, I mean, it's already everything is already expensive. And then to have to go and buy, you know, 50,000 units at one time when you haven't sold one uh, is pretty, pretty daunting. So, uh, again, I, to me, everything in life and in business is about relationships and making it a win-win situation. It just makes it that much easier to move along. So. Were That's you, what I did. Now, were you nervous at that point? So you still, you've invested money, time, energy, or you, and you still, you finally get the first one. Are you thinking in your head, you know, I'm definitely gonna be able to sell these, or are you still a little unsure, like what's what's gonna happen in the market at that point? Oh yeah, I mean, you you look at life and you're like, oh dude, I got, this is awesome. I'm gonna sell this to everybody. And your friends are like, yeah, dude, that's really awesome. And yeah, it's tough. We. Out of the gate, though, we made a really good decision, and my partner and I decided that it's a very visual product, which my wife proved 
from day one when I showed her what it was. And so we were thinking, how do we get this to people in a visual way? So we connected and reached out to every single like male fashion influencer we could on YouTube. And we just thought that that would be the way to do it. And very within a month or two, a few months of actually launching, our first video came out and it was exactly the right move for us. We got, I would say we got lucky on that. I'm not a big believer in luck, but we just happened to decide that that was the right thing. Uh, we followed it up with Facebook ads and tried to do all the social media stuff. Um, but <clears throat> that helped get it going. Yeah, it's, you know, in the beginning, it's like, oh, I had a, I had a sale today. Like that's, like that's exciting. <laughs> you go three days without one, and then you get one the next day. And um, you know now the goals are a lot different. But yeah, it, I wish I had the finance uh, problems then that I have. <laughs> the ones I have now are way more daunting than the ones I had you know three years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of the things about e-commerce that as you become larger, the finance problem actually becomes slight, it becomes larger essentially because you need more money up front to purchase more product. Um, so each time you're growing, you're actually, you need more. Um, so that's something you, you don't notice, um, off the bat that e-commerce is like a, a very cash hungry business and sure you can get larger, but you need to, you know, have money there to keep going. So is that kind of a challenge you found as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, you always want to hit, you know, price breaks. You got to look at the at the bottom line. And, and for our business, it's it's fractions of a penny sometimes. And I mean, when I first started out, my instructions that I would mail out, I would print off my laser printer on a plain piece of paper before we stepped into a nice cardstock color thing. And then it was stepping into custom envelopes and stepping into each little step. But it was just the progression that we needed. And I think those people that got those original orders understood that we were brand new and we were like totally trying and the effort was there. Um, you want to present yourself as like, you know, this giant company, but sometimes it's good to just say, look, man, I'm just getting started. I don't really know. Um, and just try to minimize whatever cost you can and just put the best foot forward that you can and know that if you sell a few of these, then you can go buy this. And then when you sell a few of those, you can go buy that. And, I think some people get into business thinking that they're never going to be in debt. Oh, at some point I will, I'll be out of debt. Um, I am friends with many business owners and you're never in, in, not in debt. I mean, you should be leveraging everything you can. If you can build a relationship with a bank, you should eventually hopefully have a multi-million dollar line of credit because you don't want to have to put that money out. It's okay to have debt. You just have to manage it based on the actual numbers that are going in. And if you ever watch Shark Tank, you'll see, know your numbers, know your numbers, know your numbers. And people that don't are the ones that get hurt. They think that, oh, I bought it for 10, I sold it for uh, 50, I'm making a ton of money. And they don't realize all those other little expenses that build up. And then all of a sudden, the thing they bought for 10 cost them $52, and they're selling it for 50 and they're losing. So really understanding all of the aspects of the business are crucial. I'm, I, I'm the QuickBooks guy. I'm the background guy of our group. And so I know those numbers down to the penny. So uh, it's really, really, really important. Yeah, that's one of those things. Each each step down the line, there's a little bit of profit that kind of comes off. And it could be pennies, like you said, but they, they add up. And, you know, the margins are tight anyway. And then however you're selling it, however you're filling it, shipping it, each one of those adds something onto that. And it's really, you know, knowing what there is at the end kind of gives you a very good idea. And 
you also know how much you can spend for marketing at that point. Because if you're, you know, if you're going down to, you know, a sing very low single digit percentages, and then, okay, there's nothing left over for marketing, how are we going to sell this? So knowing those numbers is critical to knowing how much you can spend to actually get it out there. I also like what you said too about portraying the size of the company. Um, you know, because there's folks out there that you get the email and it's, um, they try to portray themselves as like Fortune 100 sort of thing. And there's other ones that it's, you know, you get the email directly from, um, from Rob at Million Dollar Caller type of thing. So where do, and they want to show, you know, hey, well, it's like two person operation. Where do you kind of fit? Even in this is, in this kind of a philosophical thing here, some folks at the beginning want to go off and look big. And then you see other folks that there's, you know, 100 people working for them and they're still sending out emails from Rob. Um, so where do you kind of stand on that? I think in the, you know, in the world of e-commerce, there's no relationship. There's, there's little relationship. There's little personality. And for, so for us, uh, it is going to be from me or from somebody specifically on our team. There's three of us. So uh, we want it to be as personal as possible and, you know, giving good customer service. We are, are totally available. I've got so many emails where people are like, hey, this didn't happen or this isn't right or that didn't work. And I'm, I respond immediately. I mean, as soon as I possibly can. And even if it's a couple hours later, I'm like, sorry for the delay. People are like, dude, that was quick. You know, I think if you forget that e-commerce is still a relationship, even though it's over a computer, that's where people get hurt. And I think if you can try to, I, I've done retail, I've sold houses, cars, and diamonds. So that's all relationship stuff. They're big ticket items. And I brought that mentality to a small ticket item um, and I just try to, you know, have as much of a relationship as I possibly can, you know, in an email or on the website or uh, some kind of follow up. You, you just kind of have to, for me, that, that's what's going to set us apart in the e-commerce world. Um, yeah. And this is sort of the product where once someone starts using it, you know, we're men, we have shirts, um, we're always going to have these college shirts. So once you, once you say, Hey, I put, you know, three in my first shirt. You're gonna get a couple, you know, couple more, and say, okay, let's let's keep doing this over time. And it sounds like you'd almost build this little, you know, collection for all of your shirts. And then obviously at some point you're gonna need some new shirts, and you're gonna keep buying more. So having that kind of relationship, so everyone kind of thinks, oh, I gotta go back, and you know, I got some new shirts for Christmas. I have to, you know, buy some of these to get them in there. That's one of those things that you really, the relationships probably one of the more critical um, in this sort of e-commerce business. That it really is something that you need. Go all the time going forward. Well, and if you can, you know, stand out from what you're used to buying, I mean, you go on Amazon and you order and your stuff shows up and it's like, okay, I clicked a couple times and a thing showed up. There's it's no, it's not really that exciting, but for us, it's a hell of a lot cheaper for you to be impressed by an email or a video or something to feel some kind of connection to go tell your buddy, dude, you have to go buy this. Like this is the greatest thing ever. I mean, I've bought a couple products and I know that when I get something that's cool and I get a good vibe off it, I'm telling people that aren't even asking about it. So that type of word of mouth, that's how my screen printing business grew. I just did things that other screen printers didn't because I was treated so poorly by other screen printers. Um, just put yourself in the buyer's shoes. You know, my mom and dad always taught me growing up, you know, treat others how you want to be treated. I, I want to feel special when I buy something. And that's what we try to portray. Hey in our process uh, as much as we possibly can. I like that. 
So then those first few orders, first few runs, it sounds like um, it's a relatively local company. So you were able to probably, I'm guessing, physically drive there, pick the products up, drive back, and you were selling them out of your home at that point. So you're getting the orders and physically shipping each one out. Yep. Yeah, I would, <laughs> I would literally, so we were in LA at the time. So I had my first run of inventory. My first run I got, I think like, three days before I moved to Los Angeles. So I found a little bit of room in the car and shoved those in, but I would get an order and be so excited. I'd process it right away and I'd run down to the mailbox and throw it in the mailbox and make sure that somebody's order went out as quickly as possible. Because uh, now that we've shipped, you know, 11 or 12,000 units uh, or orders through just the post office, I know that they're not always as reliable as possible. Um, so I wanted to do what I could on my end to just get it out in, in that process moving as quickly as possible. So totally dude. I, I picked it up. I would sit at night after working all day and kind of assemble our product, you know, while I was watching TV with my wife, it was just something that I could do while we we're doing that. Um, so I had all day to focus on what I normally had to do. So yeah, I did I'd done every little step along the way. Now I have uh, a guy that used to work for me at the screen printing business is kind of doing those daily orders for me. So we're starting to branch out a little bit, but yeah, like you said earlier, you know, when you're the owner and it's your idea and you want it to work, you've got to do everything. And I think it's good to know, you know, in a year or five years, when you're a bigger company, you remember what it was like shipping and doing that job. Cause if you have never done it, you don't know what they're going through. And so it's hard to uh, make it more efficient or make it work better or make it you know, a, the right experience for the customer if you've never done that. It's, it makes it a lot more challenging. Yeah, and it sounds like when you're hiring for that role as well, actually doing that role really helps you to hire for that role because you're basically replacing something you did and not just like this theoretical thing that you think you're going to need, but actually, okay, this is how we ship. This is exactly the job description. I know because, you know, I do the job right now. So it's easy to write a job description for something you currently do versus kind of making like a theoretical job description up, I've noticed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and when you hire, it's a hard thing to do. But if you can get 80% of what you would do out of an employee, you're doing really, really good. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it's it helps. Like you said, if you've done the job, it's a lot easier to say, here's how I want it done. You know, you think just shipping, it's like, oh, just ship it. Well, no, like we handwrite the person's name and Whoever ships it out, their name is handwritten on each invoice, so or packing slip. So there's another little personal touch, and I want—I don't care how sloppy your handwriting is, put your name on it. You know, I—I want to know that it wasn't just a computer that stuck a label on and shot this out. Like you still do that. So you guys still do that today? Yeah. Handwritten. Wow. Okay. So then you're still shipping all of them. Are you still doing the same process with the same manufacturer, bringing them all to LA, shipping them all out of um, the LA location today? Uh, no, I found out very, very hard that uh, Los Angeles mail does not want to scan my package. Mm. And so the first scan was typically when it would get to a person's state. So it shipped to you in New York and it's like, dude, I ordered four days ago. It still says pre-delivery. I'm like, I promise. I ran it down to the mailbox five minutes after you ordered. It's there. But the first scan wouldn't come until it got into New York. And, you know, it just drove people nuts. Like, what's the point of a tracking number if they're not tracking? So uh, I moved the shipping back to Wisconsin. My mom was actually doing it for a little while, helping me out. 
Um, and then my sister had another kid, so grandma had to kick in. So um, that, that guy, Angelo, that works for me back in um, at the screen printing business is doing the shipping for me now. So it's a pretty easy um, process. We've I've, I'm a real logistics guy. I want to make things as easy as possible. So if you saw my screen printing shop, you'd be like, okay, I understand the flow. Um, so it's a pretty easy process. He works out of his house and just and shoots, shoots them out, you know, every day. So, hmm. so then the on the you said the you're doing a lot of influence type marketing. When did that start? And because right now that's kind of all the rage. You hear a ton about that, but it sounds like you were a bit ahead the curve on that one. We did it right away. We, um, you know, we searched for our industry, searched fashion influencers, and got some names. And you, we started messaging to see what we could do. Uh, this is those guys' job. So they get paid, um, but it, it trying to find the right fit for you. And my advice to anybody who's looking for an influencer, we've done guys that have a hundred thousand subscribers and guys that have 2 million subscribers. And obviously the 2 million guy is significantly more expensive, but I'll tell you what, you got a hundred thousand subscribers. Nobody knows who you are except your subscribers and they actually listen to you. When you get to 2 million and you've been on Shark Tank, you got a lot of fans or a lot of people that follow just because you're famous. And there aren't, to me, they, it wasn't as, uh, as strong of a following as the guy with 100,000. And we still get discount codes, which is how we track uh, orders from those different videos from the guy with the smallest amount of following today. And that, that video is two years old. So for us versus an Instagram, which we couldn't figure out how to monetize, you know, you post a picture on Instagram and, you know, it's gone in a couple hours because people follow so many things. It's so far down on the feed. YouTube never goes away. That video is always there. It's always an explainer. It's always available. It's always searchable. And to us, that was really important. So it was worth more to have a, you know, sponsor a five or an eight minute video than to just have one post go out or even 50 posts go out on Instagram that, you know, within a few minutes are gone. So is influence marketing still your primary channel right now? So you said you tried Instagram, but is influence marketing still, you know, what you found to be most successful? That's what, that's, what's most successful. Um, we've done a bunch of Facebook ads, so I, that gets us in front of people and it drives traffic. And then once they've come to the site, it's all the follow-up. So the retargeting ads, uh, if we get an email address, we've got a really great ebook that we came up with. Um, so we've given out as much value as we can and try to keep people engaged and all those things add up together. Um, but for getting the, the product across to somebody who cares about the way they look, you know, if they're going to follow an in, or watch a, a fashion video on YouTube, they care. That's what's been most effective for us. Yeah. It's also very, until you actually showed it on video just now, I, have, I was actually picturing something a little different when you were talking. And then as soon as you kind of showed it, I said, Oh, okay. That act, I, I know that problem. I've actually had that problem. So it's one of those things until you really see it on a video, it, it really does, um, show exactly what it does when you see it. Well, our challenge for us is that this part of the shirt is called the placket, but nobody knows that unless you make dress shirts, nobody knows what a placket is. I talked to a guy who has owned a dry cleaner for 80 years. The uh, super awesome, hilarious guy. I told him about it and he goes, I, I don't know what a placket is. And he's seen millions and millions and millions of dress shirts over the last 80 years. And he didn't know what a placket is. So 
That's why it's called million dollar collar because it kind of gets people at least thinking in the right general area. So we have this education process to really explain what the product is, where it goes in a shirt, and why it's so much different. So yeah, the video is night and day. It's, it's, it's no question for us. Yeah, it's funny when you, uh, so you sent me a little description before the show and I read it and I read Plackett and I said, Ooh, it looks like he, uh, mistyped something here. Let me look that up. And I go, no, no, it's actually, that's actually a thing. So I, it's actually, a thing. Yep. yeah, I didn't know that. I, I was looking at Wikipedia. I'm like, Oh, that's what that part of the shirt's called. Never knew that. So, so my wife actually came up with, um, we call it placketitis when your shirt is like this. <laughs> so yeah. it sounds like a disease, but it's curable. Don't worry. You know, it doesn't matter if you have a $20 shirt or a $200 shirt. It, your shirt can get placatitis, but we, we got your cure. We got we got you covered. You need a Wikipedia <laughs> page for that now, Joe. It, uh, I definitely thought that was a I mis- tried. Mis- I, keep, I keep trying to put it in, and it keeps getting bumped. <laughs> I tried to do Urban Dictionary, too, but they keep bumping it. Maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll help out with that. We'll get a few fans kind of uh, writing in and updating that for you. So Yes, placatitis. Placatitis. Go to placatitis.com, and you'll find it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any so any last tips for folks kind of starting off? They have an idea. They're kind of thinking, "Hey, I wanna I wanna build something. I have this idea, but I don't know where to get started or if I should." Any last kind of words of advice you give to them? Uh, first, if if there's a if you seriously have a question, I'd be happy to answer anything. To me, success is giving back. Um, I have found a mentor networking group when I got to LA. I was very very fortunate to meet some guys that we met some girls on New Year's Eve that my wife and one of the girls became really good friends. We went on a hike and one of my mentors is one of the founders of Expedia. And I literally met the guy two and a half months after I moved to Los Angeles, which is insane. And, uh, but you need to put yourself in the right vibe, you know, in the right arena. We sold everything to move to Los Angeles from inexpensive Milwaukee to very expensive Los Angeles, and it's paid itself in spades. Um, but surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. I, I if you look on my LinkedIn, that group uh, is called Metal, and I, my first thing in it is I'm proud to be the dumbest guy in the room because every time we get together, I learn something. And if you think you're the smartest guy in the room, or you are, you're in the wrong room. So find other people that know what they they're doing or have done what you want to do. You talk to anybody who's successful and they always talk about mentors. Find a mentor that can help you because somebody's already done what you're trying to do. Awesome. I definitely uh, hope some people will contact you. That's uh, Thank you for that. So appreciate it. RobertMillionDollarCaller.com. I'm happy to answer any questions. I've already had a few people reach out. I love it. So um, yeah, happy to happy to guide. All right. So where else? So we'll definitely put some links in the show notes. So RobertMillionDollarCaller and where else can people find you? Uh, the website right away, milliondollarcollar.com. If you need stuff really quick, you can always order on Amazon. Um, but yeah, we're on Amazon and, and the website are the two main things. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Million Dollar Collar. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty straightforward. All right, I'll be sure to add that in the show notes. So if anyone wants to find you, they can uh, reach out. So it's been great chatting cool. today. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. It's been fun. <laughs> Thank you.